Hello, and welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I'm one of your hosts, John McMahon, and joining me on the other line is my other co-host. She's just back from making her dream purchase. It's a jet ski, Danielle Hanley. Oh my God. Hello. That is a... Perhaps my favorite intro that we've had across these two different seasons of TV. Wow, thank you. I'm, I'm honored. Um, I hope there's some bodies of water in Worcester, Massachusetts for you to use the jet ski. But, you know, we, you do what you can. If you have a dream, you got to go after it, right? <laughs> that, like, that really does feel like the motto of this show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to save my Worcester bashing for another time. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't. That's like a bonus, well, bonus content for I the just, listeners. Before we get into this, I was driving yesterday. And there were like all these people with like huge boats on these back roads. And I'm like, where are you going with boats? We're <laughs> very far inland. <laughs> yeah. But there are a bunch of lakes up here. So I guess okay. people like use boats on lakes. I don't know. I'm not a boat person. I mean, I can, as you know, like I can, I have a view of Lake Champlain from my apartment and like the sailboats were out today. I could see them. Yeah. But Lake Champlain is like a hardy body of water. So even it though sure it's is. landlocked, it's like, it's big. We, we were on a boat in Lake Champlain <laughs> a, mere, a mere year ago. <laughs> exactly. Um, that was, I think Danielle feared for her life on, oh the, on, on the Lake Champlain ferry. Oh I mean, my God. I've lived in Plattsburgh since 2018. Not necessarily the most frequent ferry goer, but like probably over a hundred trips on the ferry at this point in my life in the single oh rockiest, <laughs> waviest, most danger inducing ferry trip was Danielle and I returning late at night from the like Vermont Lake Monsters baseball game <laughs> with producer Amy. With producer Amy, yeah. Was a real so. it was a real like mid first wave of the pandemic reunion. Exactly. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Um we could do lake talk. Maybe we'll do a, a Patreon episode. <laughs> I'm in. Sign me up. I'm ready. I just feel like it's so it's like it's such a testament to like who we are, which is like we could give us a topic, pull it out of a hat, and we could find something to talk about for an hour and pretend that it's not political theory, even though it is. Yeah, I would definitely like there's some there's I'm sure there's some lake metaphors somewhere in the in the canon. Yeah, I'm sure Plato's always good for a metaphor. <laughs> um okay, we are here. Oh, would you say that we're on the shores of the political? Oh, Oh, I love I'm sorry, Ranciere. but I had to do I it. Love I love Ranciere reference. You know that I love Ranciere. I Why do. didn't you do this to me? <laughs> I'm, I'm not apologizing to you. I'm apologizing to the listener. Okay, listener, good, good. listener, who, who just tuned out. <laughs> I don't know. Lake talk is like really hot. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That, that's how we got to draw more listeners in. In fact, is lake more talk. Lake talk. <laughs> okay, we are here not to talk about lakes, but to talk about Loki. <laughs> Season one, episode two, The Variant, directed by Kate Heron, um, and written by uh, Michael Waldron, who gets the written for TV by credit, and then Alyssa Karasik as a staff writer, and Bija K. Ali as the story editor. And, and John, do you want to give us the summary? Short and sweet from IMDb this week. <laughs> Mobius puts Loki to work, but not everyone at the TVA is thrilled about the god of mischief's presence. I mean, John, does that feel like a fulfilling summary to you? <laughs> Absolutely not. Like, it seems like there are many things, many questions about how 
temporality and apocalypse work that <laughs> are not encapsulated within that partial sentence. Yeah, and also, like, the fact that they go to multiple timelines, they go to multiple, like, places on the timeline, like, put it in the summary, people. Give the people what they want. Maybe somebody with my noob level of MCU knowledge wrote that summary. <laughs> That's my best guess about what's happening I mean, here. Or maybe somebody that didn't watch the episode all the way through. <laughs> <laughs> or that. Also, I did watch the episode I know. All the way through, for the record. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, well, let's get into the general discussion, and maybe I will – maybe let's start it off with a little bit of – a little taste of Marvel explaining, just to make sure that, like – some of the stuff that structures the episode makes sense. Does that sound good? Yes, that would be extremely helpful to me. Can I pose a couple questions in this mini Marvel explaining? Pose away, my MCU noob friend. Okay. Can you talk me through <laughs> this whole Nexus event business and how it is that evil variant Loki is doing something vis-a-vis Nexus events? Sure. So Nexus events are basically like... I mean, they're basically like apocalypses, right? So there are these, they're things that make a new timeline, a new branch spring off of the timeline. So it's like when something happens that it shouldn't in regard to the sacred timeline and it creates a branch, that's a nexus event. So usually it's when someone goes somewhere that it, that they that they shouldn't when um they do something like out of the ordinary that they shouldn't and like there's a real emphasis on the should and the who is constructing that should that like should give us pause. I have lots of pause over precisely that question but I think we will get into that later. So please continue. Yeah. So so when Loki steals the so we talked about this a little bit last time but when loki steals the um the space stone the tesseract right that's the thing that like spits him out into the desert in mongolia that starts the last episode yes the possibility for that was created out of like people messing with the timeline and then loki sort of like takes another extra set of steps that causes like a branch reality. So that's, that's potentially a nexus event. But what happens is the TVA rolls in and they're like, "Mm, actually uh, we're not letting this happen. And they, they take Loki into custody and they like, they reset the timeline to prevent these events from, from like messing, messing with the sacred timeline. Okay. I think I've got that much that far. So then my subsequent follow-up question would be, we find out if I've got this right in this episode, Mm -hmm. Loki slash Loki and Mobius discover that evil variant Loki is hiding within apocalypses and that has something to do with Nexus events. Yes. And what does it mean for evil variant Loki to quote unquote hide in an apocalypse? Okay, so this is like a much memed uh, scene Gee, I wonder from why. this show. But when Loki is like taking the salad, and he's like got the pepper and got the salt, and then there's the then there's like the, the juice and like and and the soda and like everything. He's like throwing everything in the salad. I mean, as my students can attest to, metaphors to explain things are not my strong suit. <laughs> but even with that limitation, I can recognize that this metaphor is useless. <laughs> Uh, and I'm like, wow, Tom Hiddleston, what a genius. <laughs> <laughs> Which is exactly our divide. Correct. <laughs> so basically what is happening is like uh, an apocalypse is is when like 
a ton of stuff is going wrong, right? What Loki and Mo- what Loki figures out and what Loki and Mobius like basically realize is that because like a world is imploding in during an d- during an apocalypse or like a city is imploding, they literally go to Pompeii, right? <laughs> Anything that happens before the like implosion point doesn't actually register because like the thing that happens the the implosion point is like the thing that gets recorded. So think of it this way. If you had it's like if you were wearing a white shirt and you had gotten a stain on that shirt, but then your mom decided to like put it in the wash and it turns red because it's washed with the red pants, the stain no longer matters because now the whole shirt is red. Got it. And that's like h- hiding in an apocalypse is recognizing that like if you go to, you know, like next Sunday, like, which is just a random day, that's not an apocalypse. Like as far as we know, it's not an apocalypse. Right. Yet. You'll, sh- you'll show up because you're the stain on the white shirt. But right. if you hide in Pompeii, Pompeii is the shirt is going to get dyed red at, in an hour. So like if you hide in Pompeii, it doesn't register that anything is going wrong because a bigger thing is going wrong. Okay, I, then maybe that actually answers my final initial Marvel explaining question. Don't worry, folks, there's more later. <laughs> so Loki, if I have this, uh, figures some version of this out when he sees zero variance energy, yes. like recorded in the files that he is going through about the destruction of Asgard. Yes, and, and so, so- if, if I've got this, yep. then... The fact that there is there should have been some variance energy because a reason I don't understand, but the fact that there was no variance energy recorded is what clues him in that there's something about apocalyptic events that evil variant Loki is manipulating is using. Yeah, basically what Loki Loki assumes is that like his his energy should like spike at Ragnarok um, because it's an apocalypse. Um, and it doesn't. And so if it doesn't spike there, it might, might not other, it might not spike otherwise. I think like what we're led to believe is there's always a little spike of, of variance energy when, when they're like doing something, it just might not be enough to like trigger a Nexus event. Got it. Right. So like a little stain, but not enough to like ruin a shirt. Um, and so what Loki assumes is because he's, his presence doesn't get read at Ragnarok, which he has just seen in the video um, of his life that he hasn't lived yet, uh, he knows that he's there. Because his presence doesn't register, he's like, oh, if it doesn't register there, which is an apocalypse, maybe it doesn't register at any apocalypse. And if it doesn't register at any apocalypse, then like that could be where the variant of me is hiding. Okay. I think this is all very useful, and it actually sets up maybe, Danielle, as it, almost as if you were planning this, <laughs> the kind of an entree from this into the more general discussion before I ask you more questions later. <laughs> so I think one of the things that is worth exploring as a kind of characterization mechanism within yeah. or without the context of Marvel itself is unpacking some of Loki's motivations in this episode. Absolutely. Because he is at times potentially genuinely helping Mobius in the TVA. At times, he's very clearly trying to trick or manipulate them. There's these decisions he makes at the very end of the episode that we're going to get into as well. But to the extent to which 
he is indeed helping Mobius from like an emotional or character driven explanation. Why is he doing that? Do you think? And this is less like a Marvel explainy question than a kind of characterization question, I think. Yeah, I and I because I I appreciate this question. And I think like it is sort of the 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 central thrust of this episode is like what are Loki's motivations? Why and the first one being like why is he helping Mobius? Because I think where we left off in the last episode is like what what does it mean to have self knowledge, right? What does it mean to to know thyself? And I think now we're not just seeing the like what does it mean to be Loki, but also like who is Loki in, in relationships? Um, and Mobius is sort of the first one. And I think why is he helping Mobius has a couple of different answers. I think the first is that as Loki said in the last episode, he's a survivor. So like he sees that this is a path through which he can figure a little bit more out, gain a little ground, like, um, understand the terrain a bit more. Like, I think there's a selfish motivation there. Sure. In the sense that if he learn as much as he learns about the TVA, the timekeepers, how time functions, if he gets through this and continues to be this variant of Loki, he then is able to fuck around more and cause more mischief. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The, the more he knows about his surroundings, the more impact he can have on them. And ultimately, like, the, the more he can see the path to power, right? Like, yeah, because I think like Loki is, he's power hungry, but in like, it's not exactly a sinister way. It's an Nichean way. Uh, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> yeah, like he has a Nichean will to power. <laughs> will you explain what that means for our listener? And in a future cave episode, I didn't come prepared enough. Amazing, amazing, <laughs> amazing. I love it. If, if you can believe it, that was that was off the dome in the moment. I, I love I, it. I did, I did uh, not workshop that line in advance. Did not. Um, yeah. So, I, but I think you're right. Like. The, uh, he he has a Nietzsche and will to power. Yeah. And, and so like on the one hand, that's why Loki is helping Mobius. But I think Loki is also like inherently curious, right? Like there's an element of curiosity in Loki that like is connected to this like connection is connected to power. And, but it is also just connected to like who he is. Like he wants to know, he wants to be in the mix and that is a vehicle for his survival, but it's also a vehicle for something else. Yeah. Although I maybe kind of would refer that back to that will to power. And here okay. I'm thinking of the scenes in which he is explaining things about himself uh-huh. or about like the different powers or things that Loki's can do to, um, to the hunter, to Mobius, to the folks that are going to go hunt evil variant Loki. And he is, has such glee and having this moment in which he clearly has more knowledge about what is happening than the rest of them, which is the first time that has happened in the uh, existence of this show of this variant Loki being apprehended by the TVA. So I, I, I think that curiosity is there, but it seems to me that that curiosity is still oriented to shoring up his own like extreme self sense of self affirmation business. Yeah. I think that, I think that that's right. I think it's just um, perhaps like a different thread of it. Yeah. And I mean, one thing that I will say, and this is, the like Marvel skepticism in me coming in (laughs) that I don't think that on a kind of more on a broader 
characterization emotional arc that like that really works in this episode. I mean, like there's this line that it's, I think Renslayer gives to Mobius that he has a soft spot for broken things. As if yeah. Loki is this broken thing, Mobius is at times like presenting Loki as this sad, powerful, lonely boy, whatever. And like, I don't find that shading of the character of Loki, even if it's though it's coming from these other characters, perhaps should have us questioning it. But, Mm -hmm. like, that possible emotional arc or emotional dynamic I don't think works. That's interesting because I think the way that I read that is, like, Loki is also, like, on the one hand, he's got this sort of, like, desire for power, for for control, and, and, like, ability to be a trickster or, like, to clear the field to be a trickster. But on the other hand, like, Loki is a broken thing. 2012 Loki... So this is a Loki who has had a falling out with his brother in the first Thor movie and like sort of gone against him and now, and then took on the Avengers who eventually defeat him, but he's sort of in cahoots with Thanos. So like he is a bit broken, but I, I, I take your point, which is like that actually doesn't hit as, um, maybe authentically as this question of power. Sure. Although I will say the one thing that you said that I think does add some of the emotional depth that is more graspable or is more legible to me is I think you phrase it as like a desire that he has to be in relation with others or to others. And that I think does work or does show through in the characterization here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm interested to see your take on that as the series develops. Um, because I think we're getting a little bit of, of like relational Loki here. The stuff with Sylvie at the end, which we'll come to talk about, like raises some questions about relationships, relationships with whom, what, what, and, and is it all only about power for him? Yes, I think that that is a good way to put it. And even as all of the, at times he's working with the TVA with Mobius is happening, he's also, if I understand it correctly, and maybe I don't, trying to trick them, but maybe in not the most effective way (laughs) and in kind of the, he's very unlikely to get this one over on the folks. Yeah, I mean, like, he's trying to trick them. This is, like, what we see in the Renaissance Fair. Like, uh, we have a saying on Asgard, a wolf, uh, the teeth and the ears of the wolf. Yes. <laughs> Which I was like, eye roll, I'm, I'm over this. <laughs> so you um, had the eye roll of the week. Well, that's a, that's a true twist. <laughs> I did. Although, I believe that there's an eye roll coming up for you, too, so. Several. <laughs> Um, but so, yeah, like he's also, he's, so he's working with the TVA, right? He decides to help Mobius. It has perhaps like a couple of different, we can explain it out in a couple of different ways. And I don't think one, I I don't think there's only one reason why, why he's helping Mobius, but I think these are all sort of interconnected, but the tricking the TVA and, and Mobius that what he attempts at the Ren Fair is like, it's sort of an interesting twist because he seems to be at least relatively authentic and then just goes back on that really quickly, which is, which is tough. 
I think that what you said right before that gives some clue as to how at least I can might interpret that. Yeah. And that is that in a show that is about the multiplicity of temporality and the self, if we're being extremely generous with it, um, as I'm <laughs> clearly being in these episodes, Barely. then I think that leaves more room for even though this is one Loki variant, that one Loki variant um, themselves will still have kind of multiple shadings or motivations or possibilities or drives or whatever kind of categorization <laughs> or concept we want to add to it. Yeah. And I would say like the, the layman's way to, to put that is like Loki to 2012 Loki is a villain and like the Loki that we are seeing develop on our screen, on our small screens right now is I think like, struggling with the like being a villain which he was struggling with in in the avengers too so i resent like, the implication that my explanation was not a layman's explanation i'm sorry you used the word <laughs> drives so uh it was not <laughs> which can be colloquial or it can be obnoxious john when and have you ever used the word drives things. when have you ever used the word drives colloquially <laughs> Um, isn't there a Netflix show called Drive to Survive? There's not a double meaning on Drive. Okay. All right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's another one. I'm, I'm You have been hanging one. out with the Hanley sisters way too much. They love that show. They tried to make me watch it. It was no thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I will not do be doing Drive to Survive for not quite great books. <laughs> no, I no, might no. do other more further nonsense. But oh my uh, god, not that. we've definitely got some nonsense coming up. But what I mean by like layman's terms is like to put it in the parlance of the MCU. I think it's like it's the struggling with villainy that 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 we are seeing. Loki is has never been the main character of anything in any mm-hmm. of the properties until until this piece. And I think like this episode, a generous way to read it and to read the sort of back and forth that Loki has, like the complexity of his own like self understanding and self performance is sort of about like, well, what does it mean to like, is it possible to trust Loki? Right? Is that ever possible? And I think is the question that the tricking the TVA raises for the audience. I mean, it's also the question that's raised by something you alluded to, and that is at the very end of the episode, Sylvie, i.e., or evil Loki, i.e., Sylvie, has created some sort of super bombing of the timeline or some Mm -hmm. gobbledygook and is like (laughs) opening up this portal and Loki like looks back and Mobius is coming towards him. And then he follows Sylvie through the portal. And I do think that there's some complexity there in the sense that I did not read that as a pure villainy motivation or drive, if you will, when he (laughs) does that, it seems also there that there's some curiosity to use your point from earlier that is motivating that particular decision, you know, paired with the grappling with his role and, you know, what is this other Loki who is now Sylvie or we get that her name is Sylvie in the next episode, if I remember correctly. Um, So that kind of motivational question at the very end of the episode is set up by some of the competing, perhaps, motivational questions that we've been thinking about. Yeah, yeah. I think that it is 
like that scene, I think, asks us to read a, like something a bit more complex, a scene where he doesn't question, right? Like there's a little bit of questioning happening there. Like, should I go with Sylvie? Should I not? He looks back at Mobius. This is his chance to escape. On the one hand, we expect Loki to escape because that's what Loki does. On the other hand, we're like, oh, but he's like been pretty trustworthy at Roxcart. So like maybe like maybe he won't go. And so then, and then he does. Um, I think you're right. I think like the, the curiosity is, is a major, is a major factor, but I think like it, again, like not collapsible to one of these factors. I think the other thing just like worth remembering is a day ago or uh, an episode ago, Loki didn't know that there were multiple, like multiple variants were a thing. Right. Yeah. And now he's met another one of himself. Sort of. Um. (laughs) And and I'll say, I don't know if this, I think, I don't know if this speaks to the show working or not working that I had like forgotten until you just mentioned it, that he's also doing that to escape his quasi incarceration by the T by the TVA. That like, that's of, of course that's part of his motivation, but like I had not quite put that together. No, because I think, like, this episode, because he's, like, helping out, and because, like, he is, I mean, like, this episode has Loki and Sylvie fighting, right? Like, he's clearly not just like, oh, yeah, I'm only trying to escape. That's the only thing I'm doing. It's not the only thing on his plate. So, like, it makes sense to have like kind of overlooked that. And I think because we just saw Loki like turn on the TVA, you know, a couple of scenes ago, we can't help but think like, is this another turning on the TVA? Sure. But like, as, as you, as you said, like that's not the only thing that's happening there. And, and so like a more generous reading of it is like, I think to focus on the curiosity of it all. Yeah, I think a different reading on it takes us back to an earlier conversation that Loki and Mobius have where they're discussing the purpose of the TVA. They return to the question of determinism and free will. They talk about chaos. They talk about the timekeepers. And Mobius makes this comment that it's in some ways it's only the ones at the TVA themselves who are really free, which I think is just like terrifying nonsense. But it's almost as if Loki is trying to prove otherwise Uh in the actions that he takes at the very end of the episode. Can you talk a little bit about why you think it's terrifying that only the people at the TVA are free? (laughs) I mean, I think a general free will in some form position says that (laughs) one would say that, well, if you have some entity, some institution, some quasi-state determining the entirety of how people's lives are going to operate, Mm -hmm. and yet the people who are within that institution are free to mess around within the broad confines of that and understand themselves to be the only ones who are free is just terrifying. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> and and that's the position that Mobius articulates, right? Yeah. And like, I, I think it raises the question, like, are the people of the TV, do you find the people of the TVA free? No, not at all. Why not? 
because they have bought into an institutional logic in which who or whatever the timekeepers are, are the sovereigns, uh, the three, the three sovereigns of the Leviathan frontispiece in these cool statues that are everywhere who are dictating ever the lizard people, right? Like the three magic lizards and they've subsumed themselves into the three magic lizards. Yeah, I mean, like, I I laugh because, like, it's a real, like, Habesian freedom, right? It's like, oh, you're free because, like, you have no power. Yeah. And so, like, you, the little power, the little, like, control you have over your lives makes you feel as though you're free because yeah. you can make some decisions. And your question raises a really important point in the episode itself in the way that most... <laughs> Loki asks Mobius about jet skis because you know, uh-huh. he's like stole a jet ski magazine from Mobius's desk or whatever. Yeah. And Mobius goes on to this thing about how like the ability of people <laughs> to kind of have like these frivolous nonsensical jet skis is what the TVA is fighting for. And obviously that's just bonkers, ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. And your question about like, are those at the TVA actually free? takes that ridiculousness and gives it a kind of uh, better, like a more bite to it. Yeah. Because like ultimately, right. It does seem like Mobius wants a jet ski and he can't have one. Correct. (laughs) Right. So like even on, even on Mobius's terms, like he does not seem to be free. It sounds to me, Danielle, like you fully accepted my argument from last episode that Loki is right about the TVA and we should accept the subversive reading. That he oh, offers. one million. Per- no, okay. no, no. I have one million percent accept that. Okay. I am just, you know, leaving details out. Correct. I, I, I suspect there are good reasons for that. Yeah. That we will explore in future episodes. <laughs> so I have a couple of questions for you. Please. Um, I can't now- promise I have sensible answers, but we can try. <laughs> so, because now we're two episodes in, so we've gotten a little, we've gotten a little feel for this show and it's only six episodes. So it's pretty quick. Um, what are you thinking about the Loki Morbius? Oh God, not Morbius. <laughs> Morbius was the terrible Jared Leto vehicle that just that came out a couple months ago. Yes, which I have seen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> was it in, was it as terrible as everybody says it is? You know what? <laughs> that silence is very telling. <laughs> it is extremely it telling is. that there was no answer. We don't. We can keep moving <laughs> forward. It is pretty terrible. Um, what do you make of the Loki Mobius relationship? I guess I understand that relationship from the way that I am watching this show okay. more as a mechanism for getting into some of these broader questions about time or power or what drives people or power or ambition or free will than as some sort of complex relationship or emotional dynamic. Okay. I view them like not as kind of vehicles for plot, but secondary, that relationship and the emotional beats of it, to me, seem secondary to the questions that are raised by it. But that's also, of course, I would think that way, given my general Marvel skepticism. <laughs> yeah. Right? I was just going to say, I mean, I think that that screams Marvel skepticism to me, but I, but I respect it. Um, and I ask you that because I think, like, when this came out, there was a lot made about the dynamic between Loki and Mobius and like that, that is really driving the show. And this is like a real two hander in that sense. And so, but I like, I take your point that like, it's hard to in watching the show the way you are, it's hard to view them as anything 
as as much more than like a vehicle for like these bigger questions that were sure and and also to your point as a way to inject various genre films of yeah. the last 60 years of, <laughs> of film right yeah. into the Marvel universe, right? The buddy cop, except not really, you know, they're both cops or the, you know, uh, cop informant sort of dynamic and all of these sorts of things. And so there's, there's also, but that's another huh. way in which I'm looking at what is externally, um, added to this show through that relationship. So I'm even still kind of approaching it in that slightly more structural way or narrative way. I'm going to ask you this question again at the end of the season. So right. Great idea. Like, I want to encourage you to continue to think about it. Excellent. <laughs> um, what about the, what do you make of like Sylvie as a female Loki? I roll, no, yeah. I mean, I, I roll at like, the meaninglessness of pretending that pretending on behalf of Marvel that this is some sort of great step for gender <laughs> parity oh. or equity. Um, that's again, like I want, I want to go to the external question rather than the intra universe question version of the question. Yeah, that's interesting to me because, like, so I'll just say that, yes, um, there's obviously some, like, pan like MCU pandering that's happening here. But, like, if we can take a step slightly to the side of that just for a moment, like, this is, there is a character in the comics that this is based off of. Okay. So it's not just, like, oh, we, we like, want to, like... We want to, it's not only that we want to market more toys for women and, and that we want to like show that we have representation. Sure. It's also that like this is, and I wouldn't, it's not comics accurate because the, the character in the comics is slightly different, but like the Sylvie is a character in the comics. They're like Loki does take female form in the comics. It's both pandering and it's like it has some more expansive i wouldn't say radical but at least more expansive roots in yeah. the comics canon i think that you're right to emphasize the both andness of that and i mean i should clarify like i am happy to have more than just cis men be characters and popular yeah. in pop culture things like there should be more than just cis men and uh, or white cis men as uh is like the main characters clearly obviously and at the same time like it's a cynical woke capitalism sort of situation yeah, yeah. um that's happening or can happen or and i will have that same critique coming later on in uh <laughs> and Loki, don't don't you worry, Danielle. Um, I'm not worried. <laughs> I, was, I think the other, like, the other, the reason why I'm asking you this question is, like, we, so we, along with Loki, learned that there, that variants are a thing in the last episode. We learned that there have been a variety of variants of Loki. Um, we get, like, all those pictures. There's, like, bike champion Loki. There is strong Loki. There's, like, a couple of different Lokis that are all men, right? Like, all of the Lokis that sort of flash before him. Um, in the in that scene are male Lokis, or at least present as male Lokis. And so in the episode, they are referring to the variant that they're that they're chasing as a he. Correct. Until and like a big reveal is that like Sylvie's not at least does not appear to us as a he. Sure. Yeah. And I do think, and this is a point you made in last week's episode about Loki as well, that 
the fact that Loki is somebody who varies or somebody who is multiplicitous or someone mm-hmm. who exhibits various kinds of fluidity does yeah. open up more possibilities. And I totally agree with you that having Sylvie be assumed to have been another cis man Loki all yeah. throughout um, and to take the guise of uh, multiple, not exclusively, but multiple yes. cis men as mm-hmm. she like inhabits them, which you're going to explain to me in a couple of minutes, but that actually what's actually <laughs> yeah. happening there. But as she like inhabits or takes over their bodies and then is indeed revealed to be like, a conventionally attractive cis woman, like that, that is something that is different and something that is opened up in the way you've identified, I think. I appreciate that. And let's, let's just call out Sophia DiMartino who plays uh, Sylvie, who's just like, she will continue to kill it (laughs) on my view in the rest of the episodes. Like she is, I think I find her energy to be like incredibly interesting and appreciate that this is the direction the show took. Yeah. Um, because this, this like when I was paying attention to this, this time around when I was watching this episode, um, I, I don't think I had, I hadn't registered all the he's in the episode mm-hmm. and I knew what was coming and I've seen this, this episode a couple of times, but I knew what was coming, but it was like really stuck out to me how everyone just assumed that all of the Loki variants were going to be we're going to identify as male. Yeah. And so um, I think it kind of goes along with the fact that, you know, Sylvie doesn't want to be called Loki. She, you know, she's like, you can call me, I forget what the name is, like Rad or something, <laughs> that she like finds the name that's on the yep, body. On of the, the like, yeah, flashing name tag. Yeah. Um, you know, she doesn't want to be called Loki. She doesn't want to be identified as a Loki. We like already get a little bit of that here. Um, and like to set her, to, to set this variant apart even more, I think like that'll be another thing maybe we will come back to over the course of, of the episodes. Absolutely. So I think that about gets through everything I wanted to bring up in the general discussion. How about you, Danielle? Yeah, same. Uh, I believe it's time to dip back into Marvel splaining. Marvel splaining. We we love to see it. Okay, so we just mentioned this, Danielle. What is actually happening? Like, what are the mechanics <laughs> of what Sylvie is doing to these other people in the 2050 Alabama Superstore? And is what she is doing one of the things that Loki explained to his uh, audience early on in the episode? I'm going to take the second part of that question first, because, like, no, it's not one of the things that Loki explained. And Loki seems to be surprised by Sylvie's ability to do that. Now, what she's what it looks like she's doing is is like a version of mind control. Um, and sort of like taking over the consciousness of these, of the people in, in Roxcart. What's interesting about that and sort of the reason why I'm pausing a little bit is, so again, this is 2012 Loki. So this is the Loki that's coming, the Loki that we're sort of hanging with is Loki coming straight from Avengers, which is a movie from 2012. And one of the things that that Loki does is he has, um, 
he has this scepter, which has the mind stone, which like comes into play later on. It's one of the infinity stones. And he is able with the scepter to take over people's minds, but he needs the stone in the scepter in order to do that. So sort of famously in Avengers, he takes over Clint Barton, Hawkeye. Um, he takes over various other people too. So he, we have seen our Loki do a version of that, but he needs like this external prop in order to do it. So at end, he has just done that sort of in his home timeline. And so I think like part of the surprise of this is we're seeing, he's seeing Sylvie do something that he needed like external help in order to do. Okay. That makes sense. So there's this, there's this form of power that Sylvie has activated in like transferring her like life energy, very yeah. energy into these other people that, our 2012 Loki variant would not have been able to do. Exactly. And like, so what it sort of looks like is a, so Loki, some of the things that Loki had explained um, when Mobius calls him Professor Loki, which is kind of an in-joke because on the set of Loki, Tom Hiddleston would give these like classes about like, what Loki could do and who Loki was. So it looks like they kind of wrote that into the script, which is funny. What Loki says that he can do is he can project a second con, like a second, basically like a facsimile of himself. He can like illusion projection is what he calls it. And then like he can do other things. And this looks like kind of a more advanced version of a kind of projection. That's not illusion projection, but like consciousness projection. So it looks to me, right, as someone who's sort of like in this a little bit more than you are, Correct. this looks like a powered up version of Loki's of Loki's powers. Okay. So Loki in the Avengers needed like a Hobbes Leviathan style uh, scepter is what you're saying. And exactly. Sylvie does not. Great. Exactly. That's, these these are the metaphors that will really connect with me. <laughs> I have okay, I have one a further small question about this. Okay. Can Sylvie do this? to like literally anybody could she do this to 2012 variant loki could she do this to mobius if she like got into the tva could she do this to i don't know renslayer or whoever so in the tva probably not because the because, powers don't work there yeah so if you remember like loki tries to like get his uh as you, you, you mean you, you you mean when he multiple times is like i have incredible pectoral muscles and i'm gonna play this for laughs that just so happens to show off my chest is that what we're talking about because I, I do remember that scene actually <laughs> It's like somebody in an, I watched an interview with Tom Hiddleston, like when the show came out and they, the person was like, oh, you know that like you're the, the hero because you got the shirtless shot. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yep, that seems right. But yeah, so like in the TVA, the powers don't work, or at least like we've seen that they don't work. So the assumption would be that Sylvie wouldn't be able to do this in the TVA, which is, I think, part of why we see her do this. She's not like, she has the technology to go to the TVA, okay. but she does she's not doing got that. Got it. Okay. That actually is helpful clarification indeed. Right. She's got those little like, uh, like door opener things. Yeah. Re reset charges. Reset charges are something different. Those Great. are the little okay. like cylinders. The door opener thing is that like the like basically like the trackpad, the little phone. Ah, okay, yeah, the little yeah. iPhone. 
Sure. Um, the, the thing that she uses to create the door to like jump to an apocalypse, okay. jump to somewhere else, like that could, that's how the people from the TVA came to get Loki and that's how they take him back there. So like she has the technology to go to the TVA. And so she's not going to the TVA because in the TVA, her powers ostensibly don't work. Got it. I have another internal to the TVA question, and this just might be so frivolous as to not matter, (laughs) but there's a line, and I forget, I think it was something that Mobius said that made me wonder, do they have nights and days at the TVA? Do they sleep at the TVA? We know that Mobius said time works a little bit differently there, but do we know, like, are they beholden to the Chikadian rhythms of beings? I don't know. Honestly, it's a great question. I don't know. I'm I'm impressed with myself right now. <laughs> but like temporality works different there, so All right. Well, I was impressed with myself there. I'm going to be not impressive when I <laughs> I probably lose Easter egg hunt again. Oh, so Danielle, can you remind our listeners of this game? Yes, I'm going to give John a choice of three different like scenes or things that happen in this episode, and John has to guess which is the Easter egg to like something Marvel related. Perfect. All right, I lost episode one, so I'm hoping to improve my <laughs> yeah. abilities here. Much like Sylvie leveling up on Loki, I'm ready. The first is the just the jet skis. So Mobius being obsessed with jet skis. Okay. The second is the number 372, which flashes um, in the back of the TVA a couple of times okay. in the library scenes. And then the third is Cyclist Loki. Which Ooh. is the real Easter egg? All right. I'm going to eliminate jet skis. Okay. And, I, and my, my vague sense is that there's a lot of numerology. We're naming multiverses, universes. We're mm-hmm. calling this the 2012 variant Loki. And while I could certainly see there being cyclist Loki intervening and causing mischief, my guess, my vote is for the number 372. Yeah. Good job. You got it. I did indeed level up. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you. So the Easter egg is in the TVA. um, And the number 372 is likely a nod to the Mighty Thor issue number 372, which features an appearance by the TVA. Little did you know, Danielle, that that's the one Marvel comic I've ever read in my life. So I had secret knowledge going in. No, I had no idea. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) If I had you for a second there, though, I'm going to call that a a bonus extra credit. You did. I I was honestly like, I guess I could see a universe where, like, one of your friends in high school was like, read this comic. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was really interested in temporality in high school. Um, (laughs) All right, Danielle, I think let's, let's keep, I'm on that high note. Let's move on to minor character of the week. And that's uh, a nomination from you. Yeah. So my minor character of the week this week is um, Hunter C20, um, who is the hunter that gets kidnapped in the, uh, like, from the Ren Fair, and then who the the TVA agents, the Minutemen, terrible name, uh, come and find uh, in this episode. Right, played by Sasha Lane. And, played by Sasha Lane. And I guess, like, my wonder about this character, about C20, is the seemingly, like, she's obviously been through a traumatic experience at the end when she's found by Mobius and the other hunters, 
and is kind of mumbling or it's kind of saying what seems to be nonsense. But my like working assumption is that there is in fact some knowledge that she has gleaned that even though she has experienced these dramas from Sylvie, um, she's trying in some way to communicate to her former slash current colleagues. That's my like guess. Yeah. Yeah. And well, the thing that she says, and this is part of why for me, she's the minor character of the week. The thing that she says is she's like, I gave up where the timekeepers are. She knows how to find them. Right. And we like, Mobius has kind of joked about the timekeepers until now. And, and judge Renslayer also has like done a little bit of joking um, or like there haven't been serious discussions of the timekeepers. And so when C20 like kind of comes to, and it's like, I gave up the location. She's distraught about it. Mm -hmm. So it seems like that is, it seems like that's a big deal. Any other thoughts or questions on C20? No, I mean, I'm again, there's, mechanics of what exactly happened to her at the beginning that get yeah. answered by the end when we see Sylvie, you know, doing this thing of inhabiting bodies and right. inhabiting them. And that then retroactively right. provides me as a noob context for what was going on at the beginning at the Ren Fair. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, it's helpful for us to understand not only like what Sylvia is doing. And we see it a number of times, but with C20, we sort of see that there are also these averse effects to it, right? Like that it's more, it's perhaps more than just taking over and inhabiting, Mm -hmm. inhabiting these bodies with her consciousness. But like, it does seem like she has wrenched from C20 information, Mm -hmm. which we haven't really seen her do with these other bodies she takes over. Right. So next she's going to be a crossover into Obi-Wan. Yes. Reva is like pulling things out of people's mind. Look, look at me. Look at me, Danielle. Look at you. I mean, like I would love a Loki Obi-Wan crossover. I would, though I, I would literally, (laughs) I do think that like we get, so like force, um, like force extraction is something we see in the sequel trilogy too. So it's like, we've seen it before. Yes, exactly. It's old hat for us Disney folk. Yes, like me. (laughs) All right. Should we move on to Gloss? Yeah, let's move on to Gloss. You've got some stuff in here. All right. Danielle, what is your relationship with Renaissance fairs? I have a dear friend that goes all the time, and I have never been to one. I have a similar situation. There's a there's a big run fair in so I grew up outside of Denver, Colorado, and like mm-hmm. South. Uh, there's a huge run fair that I have a number of friends who like devotedly went several times every summer, but I have never been to one. I was intrigued though by setting this at a Ren Fair in the sense that a Renaissance mm-hmm. fair is arguably where we non time traveling. We think humans are playing with temporality in our relationship to the past a little bit. Um, so yeah, I, was, but, I was intrigued by that as a setting. Yeah, but the other thing, and we get a little bit of this, I think, in this episode. Um, the other thing is, like, people at Ren... My, my like, experience with Ren Fairs is mostly, like, on TV, and particularly in Gilmore Girls. Um, Great. And it seems like people are... There, they, there are like rules about like stepping out of the temporality of the Ren fair. So it's like, it's funny in that way because like, yes, it's people who are playing with time. However, the rules around playing with time are quite fixed 
which like it has an interesting parallel to the TVA. Absolutely. There. So what you're saying is that the real variants are the <laughs> Ren Fair players we met along the way. Yes, that's definitely. What I'm <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's to take to take your point kind of more yeah. more in depth is that you know it of course raises questions about like who is actually being variants and who is not yeah. right. The you know it's uh, Mobius and Loki and the uh, hunters who are called out by the woman at the Renaissance Fair for like not being in costume, for stepping out of the scene, so on and so forth. What does it mean to be a variant, I think, is like sort of cheekily raised by the Ren Fair? I'm as clearly that's a question I'm interested in, as we will learn more in upcoming segments. It is true. Okay, so what else? What else do we have in gloss? Um, let's see. We have some aesthetics. Do you have any aesthetics you want to highlight from this episode, Danielle? I just like love the like seventies interior building of it all. Yeah. It's <laughs> um and like I really like the color palette of the TVA. Mm-hmm. It's like muted in the right way. Yeah. This episode, and actually when we were talking about the aesthetics of it a little bit before we started recording, it finally clicked what my connection was to those 70s interiors. Okay. It was the library at my undergraduate institution, University of Denver, which was built uh, in the 60s and uh, mid-70s, I want to say. Somewhat ironically, like on a site on campus, like on ground, that was used for like an anti-Vietnam, like pro protest, camp out, like extended situation um, as part of the student movements of the late 60s and early 70s. Oh, nice. So I went to Cornell and the, the way that, the way that like building buildings at Cornell works is that buildings have to be built in the architecture of the time period in which they are built. Mm-hmm. So there's like a big building that's like built in the thirties and looks like a factory. And then the, the campus bookstore is built into the side of the hill as a bomb shelter. Cause it's built in the seventies. Ah. So, so what you talking about the sort of seventies aesthetic of it, I think there is, there's some like, bomb shelter aesthetic. Yeah. I mean, and it's like, I'm thinking like orange carpet, lots of circles, weird lighting, like plush, but still uncomfortable seating. Like lots of, lots of things that are calling back to Penrose library. Um, which they like demolished, updated and moved most of the books, uh, off site because that's the world we live in. And you know, the year of our Lord, 2020, whatever. (laughs) I think this in the teens, I think. But also the lighting is interesting, not just within the TVA itself, but like the red light that 20 to 2012 Loki is kind of bathed in while they're in the big box store in Alabama towards the end is just, I thought a really cool, especially like the association of red with villainy. And this is a moment where Loki is potentially considering what we could as an audience member call villainy. I enjoyed statues of the timekeepers. I'm really into those um, throughout, even as I am, you know, if, if, if we had John Dossier, like what the fuck is up with the timekeepers would be item number one through 4,000, but they have some pretty kick-ass statues. They do have some great statues, and I just, like, love the recurring joke of the, like, lizard people. <laughs> yeah. Um, Renslayer's office is coolly designed, and, like, the fact yeah. that the three timekeeper statues are, like, the pillars and the, like, oval, uh-huh. ovular part of it are really cool. 
Yeah, it's very the design of the TVA is is very consistent, which I appreciate. I like something I like about Marvel shows is like the attention to detail and like so I like Easter eggs or like the fact that we are getting the we sort of get the timekeeper motif over and over again. If you look at the background, I think this is in like the scene where Loki is entering into Renslayer's office. There are like all of these little hourglasses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like keeping with the like temporality theme, this isn't exactly an aesthetic point, but it's, it's related. Uh, so when Renslayer is like, put your like drink, like you're making rings on the table and the coaster that Loki uses is in the shape of a hexagon, which like, I think, and like others think is like perhaps a callback to the hex in WandaVision, which was the shape of the like town that Wanda took over and like the structure that she created. So like, again, there's like all these little connections, which like, I just appreciate. I appreciate more of the aesthetics of the production design, but I'm glad that the production design is open to multiple interpretations and meanings <laughs> to multiple kinds of viewers of this television show. <laughs> Uh, John, you have on our list one good joke, Pompeii. So I want, <laughs> I want you to tell us what you think the Pompeii joke is. Okay. It's a two-part joke in Pompeii that I really enjoyed. <laughs> and it's – so Loki and uh, Mobius are in Pompeii. They're, like, figuring out this disaster <laughs> apocalypse nexus situation. And uh, Mobius tells Loki to, like, you know, keep it keep it chilled. Like, don't, you know, get out of pocket too much. Yeah. And Loki, of course, is like, this is fucking wild. I'm going to open the animal cart. The goats are running wild. You know, be free, my horned friends. <laughs> nothing matters. Nothing has consequences. He's jumping around. He's climbing on stuff. He's like proclaiming to the uh, citizens of Pompeii and that kind of, you know, the, the, the nothing has consequences followed up, uh, following up on the be free. My horned friends was uh, the one good joke this week. My, it might be my favorite line in this entire episode when Loki's like, be free, my horned friends. And he like, it's like, you know, he's got horns. They've got horns. (laughs) Which I just wow. um, no, Don did not pick up on that. That's true. Um, I had to like, like that's the joke. <laughs> I had to have the actual joke uh, joke explained to me several times. Um, I like to marvel explain. I like to joke explain. It's like I just first of all, I think that the like be free, my horned friends is such a funny joke. <laughs> Well, see, this is what I really appreciated is that it worked for me as a joke just because goats are cool and like are, you know, out are out of control and live their own lives. And so like, like, so Loki's just like, these animals are cool. Let them be free. And they have horns. And I'm like, that's pretty funny to me. And actually the fact that uh, Loki has horns in some versions of himself risks taking this into eye roll of the week. So I'm going to stick with my version where goats are cool is the joke. John, I love you, but goats being cool is not a joke. (laughs) (laughs) Like that's the wrong definition. of joke. (laughs) Like I'll take all of the like Marvel blasphemy that you've got. Just like, shitting on all of it like that's fine but like goats being cool is not a joke man (laughs) okay that might be true but i also continue to maintain that i'm being way more respectful than i may otherwise be inclined to be towards 
No, that's fair. Television show. No, 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 no. I, again, I'm being serious. Like, do what you need to do. How, like, but let's just like let's let's call a spade a spade. When something's a joke, something's not a joke. Well, I mean, really, like, why I think it was spoke as a joke to me is because my Instagram feed is predominantly like cool animals doing stuff and like including owls, awesome, including owls, including goats, including mostly cats. I'd say that's predominant. Cool. Um, of course. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I'm just oh. like, haha, this cool animal is like fun to look at and is, you know, doing its thing. And that was amusing to me. I and mean, that's why does. I thought the non-joke was a joke. It Listen, I'm with you. It does work on that level. Loki just like rolling around with goats is funny. It's just not a joke, but it's fine. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, it's fine. We'll each take our respective like understanding of that scene and we'll move on with it. Great. It's all about multiple selves on Loki anyway. All right. I go. think the one other glass item that I want to that I want to raise is so for mechanisms that are related to the kablooey blue gum situation that Mobius found in the last episode. They know that they're looking for some sort of apocalyptic events from like 2048 to 2050, whatever. Uh And like, there's this scene of uh, Loki being like, there's a hurricane here and uh, there's this other disaster here (laughs) and a famine here. And like, you know, I get that, like, maybe that's supposed to be funny, but, like, I think that's exceedingly cringe coming from, like, one of the largest capitalist firms in the world. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. The the part, the one that I really appreciated was when Loki's, like, swallows go extinct. <laughs> and Mobius is like, oh, I really, like, destroyed the ecosystem. Which I think, like, literally just doubles down on, on precisely the insight that you had that's, like, uh... They're, like, in on the joke, but they're the cause of the joke, which, like, makes the joke not a joke anymore. Yeah. Don't worry. We have the same dynamic coming up very soon, audience. (laughs) Um, Okay. Let's dig into politics and the MCU, a new segment that we have in our Loki episodes. Yes. So, Danielle, you identified there being dynamics worth talking about the fact that when Loki comes to work on behalf of the TVA, he is in fact working on behalf of the institution, which kind of apprehended and like quasi imprisoned or incarcerated him. So what does that raise for you? I mean, to me, it raises questions about like the, about about this quest for self-knowledge. Like, is that, is self-knowledge possible under conditions of like, oppression and uh i don't know this sort of like being turned against oneself right like so those are some of the questions that it that it has raised for me it just it's also just messed up i think just messed up is, is is the exactly right way to put it you know, where in other places I'm, I've been extremely willing, I think, to give kind of generous interpretations of like, these are interesting questions being raised, or there's this reading we can do of Loki. Here, it's like, there's no available, well, this is a commentary on like panopticism, um, or a commentary, <laughs> right, on the way that institutions of control and domination function on those who are subject to those disciplinary powers. Like, I don't think that's an available reading where I'm more willing to go along with other possible available readings elsewhere. Yeah. And I think like, I am, I think we end up at the same place, right? Which is like, I'm generally like open to these other available readings, but there's something about, I want to say backwardsness of, of this that like really, 
really strikes me as problematic when other things sort of like wash away from me a bit more. Right. Cause I mean, if we're going to like take this infinitely too seriously, like what is being depicted is like a really fucked up form of prison labor. Exactly. Exactly. Right. If we're like to put an overly blunt point on it. Yeah. It's a fucked up form of prison labor that is like dramatized for our entertainment, which is like, that's the whole problem. And played for laughs too. Like, yeah. Yeah. And I think like part of it, part of what is in my other work, right. I'm like writing about the Medea project, which is theater for incarcerated women, which is a performance collective that is made up primarily of women who are like incarcerated in the San Francisco city jail. And so the performances there are like aimed to be transformative, but it's like Loki has been robbed of, of like the agency that these women are, are like seeking um, in ways that is like just really frustrating for me. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's the, (laughs) I like, I would say like the politics of that are just, Straight up messed up. <laughs> yep. Agreed. Also not ideal in terms of politics <laughs> in the MCU uh, frame is, you know, there is this joke at like the expense of this being a company town. Um, the, it's like a company town, this uh, rocks cart situation that they are going to transport to, which is experiencing a hurricane. And much like the uh, sadness of a giant capitalist firm being like, there are all these uh, disasters that are caused caused by capitalism and we're going to laugh at them. There's something about like fucking Disney, which with its Disney worlds and Disney lands and Disney and various places around the world. And especially the like Epcotness, like planned futures um, is like my friend and uh, colleague on the mostly defunct other podcasts I do. James Paolini Jr. has like, dug in on Walt Disney had some really wild fucking plans to actually create like a quasi sovereign company town in Florida back in the day. There's just all sorts of ways in which Disney is actually a company town. Uh, And, um, and yeah. And so making fun of company towns is also a, like we would like to have our cake of making a joke about company towns and eat it to eat the cake too in the form of like profit. So yeah, that's exactly where I was going to go. Like eat the cake, but the cake is profit and it's all profit. It's only profit. Yes. Seems seems like the vibe. All right. All right. Um, Should we dig into the cave? I mean, we've kind of been in the cave throughout this whole episode. Let us formally formally (laughs) descend into the cave. Passing that fire, passing those people holding, holding the little puppets. (laughs) Love the puppets. Love the puppets. What do you have for us in the cave today, John? So much to Danielle's chagrin, uh, I think it's fair to say, our accompaniment into the cave this week is the one and only now anti-vax, anti-mask Giorgio (laughs) Dobbin. So like, fuck that guy. But for a formative period in Danielle's and I's like intellectual, academic uh, acculturation and learning of contemporary political theory, right? Agamben for the ways he wrote about state punishment and states of exception and like exceptions to the rule of law and in the context of the Holocaust, in the context of Guantanamo Bay and the war on terror and so on and so forth, like was a major figure. And so Agamben is ultimately interested in how, among many other things, Sky writes a shit ton and like a lot of so it doesn't much. make any sense. 
But he oh. talks about the state of exception, right, as kind of the sovereign ability. And he's building off of Schmidt. He's building off of Walter Benjamin to think mm-hmm. through the ways in which the sovereign is the one that, like, has the ability to declare the exception. And the exception is this kind of, like, hole within a supposed liberal democracy in which sovereignty is the person who gets to decide when the exception is declared to supersede the apparent rules, protections, laws, rights, and so on of yeah. a liberal democracy. And then also he's interested in the way in which people are, you know, figures or people are condemned um, into the figure of what he calls homo soccer, which is he he who can be sacrificed but cannot be fully human. Um, And it is a he for Agamben, it's worth pointing out um, as well. And so, like, Agamben is interested in these questions about law and the law's relationship to violence and the effects of that violence on human bodies and on kind of the broader political and metaphysical structures of human communities. Is that that an okay setup, Danielle? That is a great setup and also just, like, such a succinct and clear uh, version of Agamben that, like, I want to tape and uh, play for my classes. Well, I would appreciate so. that. Um, I f- thought it was neither succinct nor clear, but let's roll. Uh, let's roll with with Agamben. <laughs> and so, the reason that I kept thinking about Agamben throughout this entire episode is the explicit language often of exceptions and criminality uh, that are used throughout the universe of the TVA. If we think about the variant as an exception, um, that's actually a kind of subversion of the sort of political structures that Agamben is interested in, right? It should only be in the kind of definition of sovereignty that Agamben is critical of, right? In like war on terror sovereignty, um, it should be the TVA that are the ones that get to decide, that get to declare who gets to be a variant. So this is like also my interest in the subversive reading of, you know, fuck the TVA. Yeah. And then also there's the way in which there's this language of crimes against the sacred timeline, right? The sacredness of it. Agamben's very interested in kind of, um, you know, uh, political theology and metaphysics. So there's the way in which the sacred part is working on hitting on my Agamben, but especially this notion of the time criminal who, because they can be pruned, erased, whatever, like kind of inhabit the figure of homo soccer, who's kind of haunting the violent sovereignties of a particular society and is the figure that both puts that violent sovereignty into question, but also in it's in the death of that figure, right? Upholds or reinscribes the, the legitimacy of that violent sovereignty. Right. So like, I, I think that this is such an apt, uh, an apt theorist to take into the cave with us, particularly for this show, because I think the idea of the variant being both the body upon which sovereignty is exercised and the like, and the way in which that sovereignty is like the, its legitimacy is maintained. Like the variant is, is the thing that steps out of the sacred timeline that then requires the stepping in of the TVA to prune, to get rid of, to like, to, uh, to do away with, to reestablish the, like the, the balance or the sort of um, the smooth functioning of the sacred timeline. Very, very well said. Yeah, and I think, like, your point about the sacredness and that language of sacredness does seem highlight the 
like special status that the the timeline has taken on yeah. this special status of the TVA itself but it it it's similarly and we've been asking this question for the last two episodes raises the question of like who established this timeline who wh- who dictates the boundaries of the should Correct. in this world and i think those are the questions that agamben is like interested in theorizing. Yes. He helps us theorize those sorts of questions about sovereignty in a like actually useful way Um, in the real world. (laughs) But in when we're talking about the TVA, it's a goblin is useful for calling into question the, what grants the timekeepers that sovereign authority to make the timeline sacred and to make those shoulds as you correctly put it. Yeah, and I also just want to I want to call attention to something that you said that idea of the variant haunting the timeline. That's it's such a perfect way to describe essentially like what the what the chase of these last two episodes has been. Um that haunting, we don't we don't even get a glimpse of Sylvie until the end of this episode. So there is a real like ethereal quality to uh, to what's happening here and a, a, a thing that is sort of creeping in that requires the exercise of authority and the reestablishing of that sort of like sovereign legitimacy. I think, I think we did it. I think this was a successful journey to the cave. Yeah. I'm not usually an Agamben fan, but this was a great, I, I feel good about, about this jaunt in the yeah, cave with Agamben. Definitely. We just like, we've stopped engaging like Agamben when he goes into the cave with us, he has to leave behind everything written from like February, 2020 onward. Listen, we made this dude put a mask on, so it's fine. <laughs> Good. The cave is masks only. Yes, correct. Unlike <laughs> any other space in society. Um, John, I think we've come to the end of this episode. I would say we sure have. Have we reached the end of time? No, that's coming later. Yeah, uh, get at us in episode five or six. Um, Want to say thanks as always to producer Amy. Thank you, producer um, Amy. Yeah. And then just a little uh, reminder that so these episodes drop on Tuesdays. On Thursdays, our Americans episodes drop. So I believe our next Americans episode to drop will be season two, episode two, Cardinal. And then next Tuesday, will be Loki season one, episode three, Lamentus. Look at you ordering the sacred timeline of this podcast, Danielle. It's really impressive. I am the sacred. I am one of the lizard timekeepers. <laughs> <laughs> I that's that's good to like say that reveal to the end. Um, yeah. So only the only the real heads will have heard heard your admission. Exactly, exactly. Well, thank you all for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books. A TV podcast. Fuck. Yes, I think I won. (laughs) (laughs) Everything is a fucking Easter egg in this goddamn show. (laughs) 